If you would please turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 27 this morning. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 957. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. And this is our third week in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And as we've seen this in this chapter, Paul provides an example of surrendering his rights, his legitimate rights, for the sake of the gospel. He surrenders his rights so as not to put up a stumbling block in the Corinthians coming to faith, in growing in their knowledge of Christ. And two weeks ago, we looked at Paul surrendering his legitimate right to worldly support from the Corinthian church from whom he's ministering. And last week's sermon, we looked at how Paul gave up his freedom and Paul became all things to all people in order that some may be saved. And Paul concluded the passage that we looked at last week in verse 23, saying that he became all things to all people for the sake of the gospel, that he may share with them in its blessings. And this was Paul's reward. This self-sacrifice, this giving up of his own rights, this was his grounds for boasting. And what's implied in this passage is that the Corinthians, that we will also join in this reward. If we too have the same attitude that Paul has, that we too give up our legitimate rights for the sake of the gospel. And what we're going to look at today is a warning. It's a warning for us to stay the course. It's a warning for us to persevere. It's a warning for us not to back off, not to become lazy, and thus lose the reward that we seek. Now, Paul is not saying that we can lose our salvation. We need to be very clear about that. As we saw in the Confession of Faith from the, from the Westminster Confession, chapter 17, their security, our security, is due to Christ. It's due to him alone. Not our own efforts, not anything we do, but to Christ. <clears throat> but nonetheless, there's a real and a serious loss, a loss of usefulness, a loss of reward that will result from this laziness, from this lack of perseverance. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 to 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your inerrant word. And Father, we pray that you will use it to teach us. You will use it to instruct us. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with me, that I will speak your truth. I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with each one of us, that we will hear this truth. And Father, I pray that we will leave here changed. Each one of us will have an encounter with the living God. And we will each be conformed more and more to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things that has been most discouraging to me these last two years during this pandemic is the number of Christians, and many of them who I would have thought were strong Christians, have simply fallen away. I mean, it started for the first few weeks. You know, for us here at Northgate, it was only about five weeks where all the churches were closed. And the only option was to worship from home on the live stream like we are continuing to do. 
And we had people text in their prayer requests so that we could feel like they're connected. There were only about six of us here. And then afterwards, we did a virtual coffee hour so we could all get together and at least see each other and encourage each other. And we did that for a few weeks. But then the weeks became months, and the months became years. And then watching the live stream went from actually watching it live and, and texting in prayer requests to, to sleeping in and maybe watching it a little bit later on Sunday to watching it maybe or listening to it on the way to work or when you're running later in the week to not watching or listening to it at all. And according to a, a Barna Group study, it said one-third of practicing Christians, one-third have stopped attending church during the pandemic. And the sad thing, many of them still have not returned. Now, two years later, and at the same time, at the same time when a large number of Christians have voluntarily separated themselves from regular worship, from, from regular participation in the means of grace, from hearing the word preached and partaking in the sacraments and, and accountability to church officers and, and fellow members and praying for one another like we just did. At the same time, social unrest, strife, hyper-political affiliation and identification has infected the church. We see divisions and fractures in the church. We see many in the church who identify more with pagan politicians, whether they're on the left or on the right, than they do with brothers and sisters in Christ, than they do with Christ himself. And as a result, the body of Christ is torn apart. And what's even worse is there are Christian leaders and pastors, solid, respected leaders, who are buying into, who are propagating pagan narratives and conspiracy theories rather than providing sound exegesis of Scripture. There are pastors and, and Christian leaders giving medical advice from the pulpit, carrying the force of thus saith the Lord. So if you act one way, you don't love your neighbor. And if you act another way, you don't trust the Lord. And sadly, many Christian leaders have abandoned their prophetic role and they've become the mouthpiece for their chosen worldly faction. And again, this happens both on the left and the right. And you know what? Satan is laughing at us. He is laughing at the church. Because Satan knows that the church, the church alone stands in opposition to his malicious schemes. And he knows that the gates of hell will not stand against Christ's church, against his true church. And he must take out the church. He must render us ineffective. And the satanic strategy is simple. It's to dilute the church. It's to fill it with false teachers, teaching doctrines of demons and, and tickling itching ears, convincing goats that they're really sheep, and encouraging these goats that are in the church to act no differently than the goats that are in the world. So that's one part of his strategy. The other part of his strategy is to neutralize the true church, to distract us to get us focused on worldly concerns, get us focused on using worldly means, get us to neglect the spiritual weapons, the true weapons we have, and blind us, blind us to the power we have in Christ. And the strategy really is to lull us to sleep, to comfort us with ease, to make Christ's church spiritually fat and spiritually lazy. My friends, none of us are immune from this attack. And Paul warns us in the very next chapter, in chapter 10, verse 12, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. My friends, mighty servants of the Lord, those who are far better than me, far better than most of us here, 
they have, at least for a season, fallen victim to this satanic strategy. And it comes, it comes at a terrible cost. Now, for the true believer, the true believer, they can never lose their salvation. The one who is truly regenerated will persevere, will go to heaven. But this is only because of Christ. Our security is in Christ alone. And it's by God's grace alone that those who fall away can actually be restored and brought back to faithfulness. But for a time, and this is the sad part, for a time they become disqualified for kingdom service. They have become ineffective. They have become useless. They fail to glorify God. And as a result, they forfeit the divine joy and the reward that always accompanies glorifying God. And this miserable and and sadly all too common condition is one that even Paul himself feared that he might commit. And in this passage, Paul gives us warnings. He gives us safeguards to put in place so we will not fall into this miserable condition. And the essence of the passage that we're looking at today can be seen in the final verse of the chapter, verse 27, where Paul says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, a more literal translation of this is actually, I beat my body and make it a slave. That's what Paul saying. I beat my body and make it a slave, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And making his body a slave, it actually fits in with the theme that we've been looking at in chapter 9, where Paul voluntarily gives up his right, where Paul has become a slave to all others for the sake of the gospel. And what Paul uses here is athletic imagery. And unlike a lot of biblical illustrations where we, we don't understand the culture, we don't understand the time, we need to explain it, athletic imagery is real easy for us. It probably means it's, it, we probably understand it even better than the original audience did. We don't need to know much background about what Paul's saying because we know sports. We know athletics. So let's look at these illustrations verse by verse and see what Paul is saying. So it starts at verse 24. He said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now Paul is not saying, let me say what he's not saying. He's not saying that only one Christian is going to get a prize. He's not saying that there's a competition. As Christians, we're in competition with one another. That's not the point. Paul here is focusing on how we run the race, how we run the race that is the Christian life. And sadly, sadly there are many who sleepwalk through the Christian life. They're true believers. They have been regenerated, but they never go beyond infancy in the faith. They fail to adequately fight against their sin, to put it to death. They really seek to live at peace with their sin. They don't strive for holiness. They don't strive to glorify God in all that they do. They don't make use of the means of grace. They are comfortable to enter the race, but they don't seek to win the race. And what I'm saying, I'm not saying they're competing. I'm saying winning the race means they seek to be the best that they could be. They seek to be what God has intended them to be. Now, again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that this work and this attitude is the grounds of salvation. It is not. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we can add nothing, nothing at all to the finished work of Christ. But what I am talking about is something that is missing in so many Christians. And it's something that should be fundamental to every single person who is a new creation in Christ. And that is, there should be a desire, maybe even better yet, a compulsion within every Christian to glorify God. To glorify God above all else the desire to make everything else in our lives subordinate to Christ. 
The desire to make him known. The desire to know him better. The desire really to to bask in his glory. To soak up the joy of his holy presence. And this zeal, this zeal for the Lord is possible for every single Christian. But sadly, it's experienced by so few. So few. And Paul encourages the Corinthians. Paul encourages us to run that we may obtain it. And this, again, is really should be the goal of every single Christian. Not just to, to slip into heaven. Not just to get fire insurance. Not just to do the bare minimum to escape hell. No. The Christian life is the most amazing adventure. My friends, we are made for a noble and a glorious purpose. We have a mission. We're not simply tourists. We're not just leisurely meandering through this life. My friends, we are spiritual commandos. We are the special forces units. We are operating behind enemy lines in hostile territories with a mission of eternal significance. We are on a search and rescue mission. That is what our job is. Every single Christian is on a search and rescue mission. We are searching out God's elect, those who are being held captive to demonic forces. And we are to rescue these captive souls by the power of the gospel. And we are to demolish these demonic strongholds in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the truth of his inerrant word. That is our mission. Those are our weapons. And my friends, to do this takes work. It takes hard work. It takes effort. It takes discipline. It requires focus. It requires sacrifice. It's not a walk in the park. I remember years ago, I remember watching a a documentary on television. It it, it followed the training of Navy SEALs. And this training was brutal. But this training had a purpose. It was to build discipline. And I remember the training, although it was physically grueling, it was really the mental part that was the most intense. And it was to create a mental toughness, a, a mental control a discipline which were all essential for the prepare the seals to do the mission that they had. So my friends, if this is what the Navy SEALs do, to protect, and it's an important job, but why? Why should we think Christian warfare to be any less intense? We're not, to, we're not in a physical battle, but we are in a spiritual battle. And you know what? The stakes are infinitely higher. They really are. They're infinitely higher. The consequences of a spiritual battle, they're not temporary. Even even wars, they're temporary. They end at the end of this life. But the battle we are in is eternal. The effects are eternal. And our weapons in this battle are different. We don't fight with fists. We don't fight with guns and explosives. But these weapons require every bit as much training for mastery. Our weapons are prayer. Our weapons are the word. Our weapons are the means of the of grace. My friends, neglecting mastery of these resources render us ineffective in the battle that every single Christian is in. Returning to this athletic metaphor, Paul looks now at the motivation for this hard work in verse 25. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. Those of you who have competed in athletics, you know that Athletics require sacrifice. It requires long hours of practice, long hours of training, running, lifting, all kinds of training. You have to watch your diet. I remember when I was on the crew team, I couldn't eat so much. I had to be way in. I had to make a certain weight. Those of you who have been wrestlers know the same thing. Watching your diet. 
And it gets worse as you get higher. At middle school, it's from some level. At high school, it's another level. College is harder. If you go even beyond college, it's even more. The more elite an athlete you are, the more things you need to say no to in order to compete in athletics. I mean, just think of an uh, Olympic gymnast. A, a, Olympic gymnast focuses on one thing. One thing, gymnastics. Everything else. Everything else in a gymnast's life takes second place. Family, friends, school, social life. Just being a kid. It all has to be sacrificed. And why? For the chance of winning the gold. The chance of being the best in the world. All for a perishable wreath. Now again, if you win the gold medal, that's amazing. You'll remember that for the rest of your life. But it will be forgotten by others. It will be. And probably a lot quicker than you think. And even if it isn't forgotten, that medal, that gold medal is perishable. It will not last forever. But my friends, as Christians, we don't work to receive a perishable wreath. We work to receive an imperishable one. So if, if an athlete will put in that much effort for a temporary prize, how much more should as Christians we put in effort? How much more effort should we put in for an eternal prize? Just think about it. Every person that the Lord uses to bring to himself through your efforts, through your ministry, it could be the person you talk to in Dollar General. It could be the person you pray for. It could be the person you share a Bible verse with. Every one of those people you will see for eternity. You will see for eternity. They will be an eternal reminder that you were used. Think about it. Millions of years ago, you will still see those same souls that you have ministered. They will be your testimony. They will be your gold medal. And that will last forever. Think about it. Do you really want to get to heaven? Do you really want to be there? And there is no one that can count you as a spiritual father or spiritual mother. No testimony of your faithfulness. You just slipped in. Now, of course, heaven will be great. You'll be heaven. You'll see Christ. It'll be great. But it could be even better. And Paul didn't want that. Paul didn't want to just slip in. Paul wanted his reward. Paul wanted his boast. And that's why he says in verse 26, so I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. See, Paul didn't run aimlessly. Paul had a purpose in his ministry. Everything that he did had a purpose. And that purpose was singular, to make Christ known, to make much of Christ, to build churches, to let others know Christ, to proclaim the gospel. That was Paul's mission. Now, how it works out will look different. Each of us have different callings in our lives. We're not, not all of us are called to to plant churches like Paul. But our purpose should be the same, to glorify God, to make him known in whatever situation the Lord puts us in. See, Paul knew he couldn't just simply rest on his laurels. He couldn't just back off just because he preached to others, just because he had planted many churches, just because he was nurturing many churches. None of this guaranteed that he, would, he was able to coast. None of them gave him reason to coast. None of them gave him reason to let up. None of it was a guarantee that he would not be disqualified. And none of this means that he'll forfeit his... None of this means that he would not forfeit his reward. None of this means that he would continue to be used by God. See, it's only through continued and diligent effort in Christ relying on his power, relying on the Holy Spirit, that future usefulness is assured. And as far as we know from, Christ, uh, from Scripture, as far as we know from, from history, Paul did remain faithful. Paul did remain diligent until the very moment that he was martyred under Emperor Nero. So Paul was not disqualified. 
But my friends, there are so many other examples in Scripture of men used mightily by God who faltered. Men who, at least for a season, fell flat on their face. And we read about two of them in our Old Testament and Gospel readings. In our Old Testament reading, we read about King David, the mighty King David, the man after God's own heart. Of all the kings of Israel, he was the top one. And David was an amazing man of God. David was a man who loved God intensely, and it was evidenced by the many psalms that he authored. And he was a man who had a a robust faith, a zeal for the Lord, a zeal for his glory, so much so that he single-handedly faced the uncircumcised Philistine giant Goliath, the man who dared to defy the living God. And he also displayed much patience when he was the, the true anointed king. And Saul, the king who was rejected, was continuing to pursue him. He, he trusted. He had patience waiting for the Lord's timing. did not take things into his own hands. And David was a gifted. He was a gifted military leader. He conquered all of God's enemies. He brought the nation of Israel to the zenith of worldly power. And it was here. It was here at the, the zenith of worldly power, at the height of David's personal power and the nation's success. It's here that David had a mighty fall. And why? It's because David got lazy. It was because he got complacent. David lost his discipline. David lost his single-minded devotion to the Lord. And David became consumed with himself, with his own personal comfort, with his own personal ease, with his own lusts, rather than God's glory. See, the David of 2 Samuel 11 is so much different than the young man who boldly stood against Goliath. And we see in 1 Samuel 11 that rather going out to battle, as was expected for the king, the king was God's anointed, king's God's man. He was to defend God's people. He was to be out in the battle. But where was David? David was in Jerusalem. David was at ease in Jerusalem. And the text tells, him, tells us he was sleeping late, arising in the late afternoon. My friends, unless you work second shift or night shift, there is no good thing that can come if you arise late in the afternoon. And he was idle. He was not engaged in the Lord's work. He was not in the battle. And even if he was too old to physically fight, he was not engaged with his generals. He was not involved in the, in the prayers. He just basically outsourced the whole thing. He wasn't praying to the Lord. He wasn't playing his music. He wasn't praising. He wasn't writing psalms. What was he doing? He was walking on the roof. And there where he fell into temptation, seeing a a beautiful woman bathing, something that he shouldn't have been looking at. Instead Instead of saying, no, I shouldn't have been looking at it, he's consumed by her. He desires her. He gives in to those lusts. And David was warned. He was warned. It wasn't like he didn't know what he was doing. His servants tell him, this woman is married. She is the wife of Uriah. She is the daughter of Eliam. And, and Eliam and Uriah, David would have known. They are two of David's mighty men. They were two of his most loyal and trusted servants. Just think about that. These were, these were the men who would give their life for David. And as, as Nathan read, you saw about the loyalty of Uriah. He wouldn't go back with his wife. He says, there's a battle. I'm going to stay here right by the king, protecting the king, because I'm going to do my duty. That was the type of men that David was betraying. And David didn't even care. He betrayed these men. David portrayed this woman who was one of his servants, who was one of his, uh, in his kingdom. He betrayed his position as king. 
And most of all, most of all, David sinned against God, the God who anointed, the God who put him in place of king over God's people. And it all started because David was careless. It all started because David was lazy. David was undisciplined. And my friends, this should terrify us. This should terrify us. Because if this wicked sin could happen to David, a man after God's own heart, a man so much better than anyone sitting in this room, it could happen to any one of us. Don't think, don't think that any one of us is above this type of evil. And then our gospel reading, the failure of the great Peter. Peter was the leader of the twelve. Peter was the one who drew off his sword and he cut off the ear of the high servant's priest in order to protect Jesus. But despite Peter's bravado, despite his pledges to die alongside Jesus, when the moment of testing of Peter came, Peter was frightened by a servant girl. Peter denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And Peter failed at this crucial time of testing. And why? Because like David, Peter was not disciplined. And specifically, we're told what happened. Peter neglected prayer. As, as Nathan read in our gospel reading, this was the crucial time. This was right before the crucifixion. This is the most crucial time in all of history when the, when the, when the atonement was to take place. The forces of evil wanted to stop this, and Jesus knew he needed to pray. Jesus was praying, and he took his, his disciples, his most trusted friends with him to pray with him. He knew that the forces of evil were going to be coming against him, and he told them to pray. And what happened? They couldn't keep their eyes open. They couldn't keep their eyes open. Jesus is praying, and they each fall asleep. Sleep was preferable to prayer. But prayer was essential. Prayer would have prepared Peter to stand this temptation. He thought sleep is what he needed, but he needed to be in prayer. But he neglected it, and disaster was the result. See, both David and Peter failed. Both men, at least for a time, were disqualified. Both Peter and David brought shame on themselves and to their God. Both men failed to glorify God. But God is merciful, and God did restore both of these men. But it still came at a cost. It was a tremendous cost. So what does this mean for us? What do we get out of this? Well, let's look at four brief applications here. The first application for every single one of us is don't neglect the small things. Don't neglect the small things. Don't neglect the means of grace. Don't neglect what we are doing right now, worshiping, sitting under the word preached. The word read, do not neglect the fellowship. Do not neglect prayer. Do not neglect Bible studies. You see, the truth is, big sins always proceed proceed from small sins. They always come from a failure to be diligent. They always come from a, a failure to stay disciplined. And the thing that absolutely terrifies me is the number of people who so casually neglect these spiritual spiritual disciplines, who casually neglect God's ordained means of grace. It terrifies me, the number of people who simply think that that corporate worship and and sitting under the preaching of the word, that's not unnecessary. I know all that stuff. Of course you know all this stuff. I say the same thing every week. You should remember it. I say the same thing every week. You know this stuff. But this is the divine, this is what God has used. The foolishness of what I am doing right now is what God has used as his means of grace to impart grace to every single one of us here. 
And we think we don't need it. We think that the, we think that the, we can, you know, watch YouTube or, or or watch radio. Yes, there's plenty of much better preachers out there on YouTube that you can listen to. But God did not ordain YouTube. You could you could do personal Bible study. That's important, and we should do that. But God did not ordain personal Bible study the same way as He had ordained fellowship and corporate worship and sitting under His Word preached, even by a mediocre preacher. The word preached is going to, in person, under a mediocre preacher who knows you, is going to have so much more impact than listening to the best preacher ever on the radio or on, on YouTube. Now, these things are great supplements. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I do this. These are great supplements, but they are not substitutes. They are not substitutes to the divinely ordained means of grace. The thing is, they do not have the power to protect us from falling away, from becoming disqualified. The power lies in the means of grace, in the word preached, in the sacraments, in the fellowship, in the prayers. That's where the power is. That's what God has promised to bless. And there are countless Christians, countless Christians, who have destroyed their witness, have destroyed their marriages, have destroyed their ministries because of carelessness. None of them thought that it could happen to them. None of them thought that sin would go as far as it did. It took them all by surprise, just like it took David by surprise, just like it took Peter by surprise. And this type of negligence could be the downfall of men like David and men like Peter. How arrogant is it to think that any one of us are immune? So this is our first one. Do not neglect the small sins. Second application is every one of us, every one of us can improve our spiritual disciplines. We may not have we might may not have committed these big sins. We may have committed sins that no one even knows, no one even noticed. But we must all keep guard. Not one of us has arrived. Not one of us can say, I don't need to worry about this. See, that's the surest sign of trouble. Again, as Paul says in, in ten in, in in chapter ten, verse twelve, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We must all be diligent. We must be all on our guard. Every single one of us can improve in our spiritual disciplines. So how? How do we do this? How do we improve? How do we respond when we realize that we have been negligent in our spiritual discipline? Well, the answer is the same whether the transgression is small, one that no one would even notice, or whether it's as huge as something David or Peter did, something that would disqualify us for a season. And the answer is our third application. And third application is repentance. Repentance. See, repentance is the only thing. It's the only thing that can stop this downward spiral. That's what sin does. It causes a downward spiral. We get worse and worse and worse. And the way you stop it is by repentance. And that reverses it. So we must. It starts to reverse the process. See, as long as we make excuses, as long as we continue to neglect the means of grace, as long as we react in anger at those who point out our failures, We continue to sink deeper and deeper into the pit. And it makes it harder and harder for us to get out. But my friends, repentance is the key. Repentance is really the only way for us to have restoration. And King David gives us a beautiful example. Beautiful example in Psalm 51, which is the quintessential example of biblical repentance, which is after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, after the after his sin with Bathsheba. And really, this is I, I would encourage you all to read through Psalm 51. Read through it and pray through it often because it shows what biblical repentance looks like. So this is our third application. Our final application 
See, if you're concerned with this, if you're feeling a little uncomfortable now, that's a good thing. If you earnestly desire not to be disqualified, that's a good thing. If you're troubled by your sin, even if they're very minor, that no one else would even know about these sins, but they trouble you, this is a good thing. See, the answer is to all of these is to repent, is to fall on Christ, on his grace, accept his forgiveness and restoration. Even if you have not been disqualified, every one of us can do better. Every one of us can be more effective in our service. Every one of us can be more disciplined. But here's the warning. If you're not concerned, if you have no care, if you're sleeping through this, if you say, this is not me, I don't need this, I don't need church, I don't need the means of grace, I'm okay, I'm not going to do anything like that. I don't need correction by God's word and by God's people. My friends, if that's you, you are in a very dangerous place. Because you may not be a David. You may not be a Peter. You may be a Saul. You may be a Judas. And if this is you, your only application to this sermon, just like every single sermon I preach, is to come to Christ. That's it. To come to Christ. Your application is to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel and become a new creation in Christ. And then you too, then you too can live the most amazing, the most exciting the most purposeful adventure in this life. And that's just, a, that's just a foretaste. Because after that, after that, the real life begins. That's where each day is better than the last. And they never end. That's what every Christian has to look forward to. That's what we get to share with people. That is, this, this life, this short little time that we have, even if you live to be 100 years old, this short blink is just preparation. Is preparation. And my friends, there's one thing that we can do in this life that we will not be able to do in in the amazing eternity of glory. And that's share the gospel. To share the gospel. We have the opportunity for this brief moment to share and bring others to Christ. That is the purpose. That is the gift. That is the mission given to each of us. We should be excited and we should be faithful to this. Let us pray. Father, would you thank you that you count us worthy to be participants with you in the Great Commission. And Father, we do confess, every single one of us, myself included, myself especially, we fall short of this. But Father, we pray, we want to be different. Father, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the desire, give us the opportunities, give us the excitement to proclaim you to all we come into contact with. And Father, we do, when we get to eternity, we want to see so many who you have used us in our feeble attempts to bring there. And those will be our imperishable wreath. Those will be our crown of glory. And Father, we cannot outgive you. Father, we thank you for that. We pray that you are glorified in us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.